Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's really a matter of pushing back against so many of the messages that our kids get in school and from the culture at large, which is if you want to get something done, you shut yourself up in a room, you have to be very still, very quiet, and then you work your brain until it's exhausted. You know, that's basically kind of the instruction that our kids get about how to get a difficult task done. And it's so counterproductive. I have tried to really instill in my kids the notion that there's another way. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Now, here's an idea. What if the whole way we've been thinking about thinking is wrong? And what if all the efficiency and productivity hacks that are about getting us to think more and better have all been sending us in the wrong direction. And what if this all explains why you and I struggle to really think clearly, to be able to understand what our partners might be thinking or saying, or to understand patterns and complex issues? The current model of thinking says that thinking happens in the brain. Now, no one really fully understands how this model works, but we've stuck to it now for many centuries. Sometimes we see the thinking brain as like a computer. We compute in a linear fashion and it doesn't matter what the conditions might be or the people that we're around, it's the same result. The brain does its thing in isolation. Sometimes we see it as a muscle that we have to work harder to get the best results. But my guest today has turned this thinking upside down. Annie Murphy-Paul is a science writer and author and her latest book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, argues that the mind constructs our thoughts and ideas from the resources available, yes, outside the brain. These resources include the feelings and movements of our bodies, the physical spaces in which we learn and work, and the other minds with which we interact, so our classmates, colleagues, teachers, supervisors and friends. The theory has attracted a lot of attention recently, and it's been featured in Time magazine, Scientific American. It won the New York Times Editor's Choice Award, and it was the Washington Post's best nonfiction book of 2021. And Annie's TED Talk has been viewed by more than 2.6 million people, and currently she's a fellow in New America's Learning Sciences Exchange. Now, the great thing about this theory is that it paves a way for us to truly think clearer and better. And in a way that doesn't involve tedious hacks and muscle-building discipline techniques, thank goodness. Throughout this chat, I bring up ways I've worked out to think better when I'm writing or prepping for these podcasts, but that I've previously felt must be wrong because they go against the current models and appear very, very inefficient. I figured that you struggle with the same, and so I get Annie to share, well, better hacks, and she's established a lot 
via the findings of neuroscientists, cognitive scientists and psychologists throughout the ages and from digging into the secret ways that artists, scientists and authors have employed mental extensions to solve problems, make discoveries and create their works. And they're secret because they've been told their methods are mad. Now, we're talking things like hiking, using gestures, napping, offloading, lying on the floor, being all messy with your handwritten notes, and then teaching people what you're learning or creating as you go, which is just the stuff that I do. Right, so here's Annie Murphy-Paul to explain things much better than I can. Okay, so Annie, perhaps we can set things up by explaining the standard understanding of how we think that uses the metaphor of the brain being like a machine or some kind of computer that computes things, you know, the same way each time, regardless of whether we're sitting in a fluorescent lights or whether we're outdoors in nature. You know, it's always going to produce the same kind of result. Could you perhaps explain explain this standard understanding? One name by which this standard understanding goes is brain bound, the idea that thinking happens in the brain, that it's sort of sealed inside our skulls like a computer. And as you mentioned, that metaphor has so pervaded our understanding of how our own minds work that we almost don't even realize that we're referencing or imagining a computer when we think about how our own brains work. But it's really a foundational kind of metaphor that pervades the way that we understand thinking and intelligence. And the problem is that, of course, there's a lot of differences between a machine, a computer, and our organic, biological, evolved brain, which creates a lot of gaps between that notion of, of mind as computer and the reality of our mind as the product of this evolved biological organ. And some of those gaps that I'm talking about might be, as you mentioned, the fact that a computer works in a consistent way. The place where it's located doesn't make any difference to a computer, whereas the human brain is exquisitely sensitive to context. It really matters where we are, who we're with, what kind of tools we're using, how our body feels, how our body is moving. These are all things that have no relevance for computers, but they're key to understanding how human intelligence works. So we don't need to toss out the metaphor of brain as computer because that's been helpful in many ways, useful in many ways, but we need to build on it and expand on it to understand that a brain is actually so much different from uh, a computer and in some ways so much better. You know, I think sometimes when we compare our brains to our computers, we can end up feeling as if the human brain is like a defective computer. Like it's like a computer that messes up a lot and forgets things. And, you know, whereas our computers are so consistently reliable, but of course the human brain can do all kinds of things that computers, at least right now, can do, you know, like imagine and plan and create and relate to other people. You know, it's really a, an amazing organ that shouldn't be compared in a kind of, you know, pejorative sense to, to a computer because it, it's, it's apples and oranges, really. Got it. So, Annie, what got you questioning this standard model? I mean, it's the dominant theory that has determined the way that our schools operate, the way our workplaces work, the way society runs. What made you buck this status quo? 
<laughs> yeah, well, you mentioned schools, and that's really where my interest started. I have two sons, and when I started work on this book and started thinking about these ideas, they were just starting school, and I became really fascinated with the way that they were learning and the way that their teachers were teaching them. And at the same time, as a, as a reporter and researcher, I was finding that the science of learning was just exploding with all these very exciting findings. So I started plunging into the science of, of learning as a, a beat for me as, as a reporter. And I was looking as I was reading and researching and writing about these findings for a kind of big idea that would pull together all these interesting research strands that I was finding. And I actually did not find that idea within psychology or within the science of learning per se. I found it in philosophy, just as a product of reading kind of more, more widely, I came across this article that was published in 1998 in the philosophy journal. It was called The Extended Mind. And this article just kind of grabbed me with its very first sentence. And that first sentence said, where does the mind end and the rest of the world begin? And that seemed like a very provocative question to me, a very ge potentially generative question, in part because it seemed like it would have an obvious or a conventional answer. You know, well, the mind ends at the skull, right? And, you know, the mind is more or less identical with the brain, right? I mean, that might have been my first thought. But the two authors of that article, the philosopher David Chalmers and the philosopher Andy Clark, who's also a cognitive scientist, they were arguing that. No, actually, the mind doesn't stop at the skull. It extends out into the world, into our bodies, into our physical spaces, into our relationships with other people, into the tools and devices that we use. And this just seemed like such a cool idea, you know? And then as I investigated it more, it started to seem like a really useful idea because it meant that we could improve our thinking by improving the raw materials that we were working with. It didn't only have to do with our brains it had to do with all the stuff around us that we could now use as outside the brain resources. Yeah. Do you want to know something really interesting? David Chalmers was my professor at the University of Santa Cruz, and he would have written that paper just a really? few years after I was studying under him. It was philosophy of the universe was the course. It was a graduate course. Oh, and it's, wow. I've written about David a fair bit because he was actually the person who wound up coming and getting me when I'd sort of disappeared from the landscape. I had uh, developed bipolar at the time. It was called manic depression. But he was the, prof the professor who noticed I was not at school and, and came and got me. And of course, he's Australian originally. He's a Rhodes Scholar and he's been working in the US and since has gone on to establish this theory of the hard problem of consciousness, as you'd be very aware. But yeah, what a, what a lovely connection that he was the person, his work inspired you to then to then write this book. Now, extending on from that, you argue that a lot of our thinking happens via the body and via something that scientists called interoception, which the rest of us call gut feeling, intuition, and so on. Now, not so much now, but in the past, I found this really frustrating. It seemed like some kind of woo-woo idea, this idea of listening to your gut. You know, I couldn't access it. It's not the case any longer. I've kind of worked it out in, in, in latter, latter years. But you've found... Otherwise, that in fact, the body can in some ways be even more rational than what we think of as the brain. Can you explain how that can be the case? 
Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Sarah, because I often in the past have felt that way as well. Like, well, what does it mean to trust your gut? I mean, sometimes your gut is going to lead you astray. I don't know that, you know, or even how does one even access, you know, those internal sensations of the gut or intuition or as scientists call it, interoception. But as I studied and researched it, it started to become more clear to me and, and not at all woo woo or kind of, you know, mystical or something. It's a, it's a very scientifically studyable process. And the process by which interoception comes to carry a lot of wisdom and knowledge that we can access through the body is that, you know, as we go through our daily lives, there's so much information to contend with. There's so much stimuli. There's so many things going on out there in the world. We couldn't possibly take it all in and process it on a conscious level. It would just be overwhelming. We'd never get anything done. But we are taking it in and processing it on a non-conscious level. And then the question, of course, becomes, well, how do we access you know, all that experience, all that knowledge if we don't have conscious access to it, and that's where the body comes in. You know, that's why you might feel a bit of butterflies in your stomach, or you realize that your heart is beating a little bit faster when you encounter a situation that your body is telling you, you know, pay attention, something important is happening here. We're recognizing a pattern that is meaningful, you know. And so then the challenge for us becomes learning to tune into that flow of internal sensations, which is always there. But I find in our culture, we're kind of encouraged to push it aside, you know, to, again, live in the head, live in the brain, kind of power through, ignore the body, you know, push aside the signals of the body when really we want to be taking a moment to tune in to that flow of sensation and to see what it has to tell us. Yeah, because our brain often gets I guess, tripped over by cognitive biases, you know, amid all the stimuli. And our body can actually sift through that, you know. So I, I guess that that's what you mean by the, the body, the way that we our mind uses the body can often be more rational, a lot more useful and reasoned, you might say. You're also right that people who are more attuned to these internal signals and cues are better able to draw on that wealth of information that we know but we don't know. And we might not just detect the signals consciously, but we respond to the information that they carry. For those listening, could you, who, who might be wondering what you mean, I mean, you mentioned butterflies in the stomach that can obviously signal excitement. It can, it can signal that something might be about to happen in your rational brain. Your brain hasn't actually worked out what that might be yet. But can you just tell us what some of these other signals might be? Things like, I guess, a shiver or a sigh and how they might be alerting us to something like what is it that they're alerting us to you, you might even have a really great example that you've rolled out before that explains it super well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well one of my favorite studies that really I think shows this quite well is a study of of day traders you know financial traders on a London stock exchange and this study examined first of all each trader's level of interoceptive awareness because this is an individual difference people are more or less attuned to their bodies and the way that this is often measured is to ask people if they know when their heart is beating to guess when their heart is beating and believe it or not i mean for some of us that's that sounds crazy like well how would i know when my heart is beating other people say oh of course, I know when my heart is beating, but that tends to be a very reliable index of how attuned one is to internal bodily signals. So in this study, the traders were assessed on their introceptive awareness, and then that those ratings were compared to how well they perform. And it turned out that 
Although we might think something like financial trading is a really brain heavy kind of activity, right? It takes uh, a lot of mental agility and, you know, that's sort of the big brains who, who, who succeed in, uh, on something like Wall Street. In fact, it was those traders who were most interoceptively attuned, who were most tuned into their bodies, who were the most successful and the most long lasting in the field. And the reason that's significant is that something like trading is such a fast paced uh, activity. You know, there's not time to think through, even if we wanted to, to use our big brains and to think through every possibility. We have to go with our gut. And of course, lots of things in life are like that. You have to make split second decisions. And so those people who are most attuned to what their bodies feel like. And for these traders, it might have been, it's probably a learning process where they 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 have a feeling, and it might be different for each person, but they have a feeling, this is a stock that I want to place a bet on. This, I don't know why, but I just have a bad feeling about this stock. I'm not going to bet on that one. And over time, they've learned to read their body's signals and to know that that gives them a clue about what may be happening in the future. And as I say, it's, it's kind of different for each person, but it might be things like a sense of tightness in the chest, a, an increase in heartbeat, a you know sweaty palms or butterflies in the stomach, or opposingly, it might be a sense of, you know, relaxation or kind of well-being or a sense of relaxing into, yes, this is the right choice, you know? So it it actually is a matter of getting to know our own bodies and what those signals are for us. Yeah. For me, as I've started to, I guess, artfully develop that skill, I've realized, you know, like these stock traders that my body often does know. And over the years, I've learned to, first of all, be aware of the signals, but then also trust them. But yeah, I tend to see things in color if it feels like a positive thing or black and white, if there's something not quite right. And just everything around me will feel black and white and grayscale. And so, yeah, it is It is a really key part of what you're talking about is to learn to trust it, but that's just experience and probably a shift in dialogue in society in and around the way that our body can signal these things and help us make decisions. But are there things that we can do to develop that ability to, to be able to listen to our body and then make decisions based on that to assist our brain, you know, in, in the decisions we make? Yes, yes. So science has found that one of the most helpful ways, one of the most effective ways to develop interoceptive awareness is uh, mindfulness and specifically a, a particular type of meditation known as the body scan, which many of your listeners may have encountered if they've engaged in mindfulness meditation. It often starts off a meditation session where you begin by paying open-minded, curious, non-judgmental attention to each part of the body, you know, just seeing what comes up, uh, you might sort of trace your attention through throughout your body, like a kind of moving spotlight, you know, up from your feet, through your torso, up to your, your shoulders and arms and head. And it's a kind of conscious tuning in to the body that, again, we so often fail to do in our really busy lives. And when we're paying so much attention to outside stimulus, all this stuff bombarding us all the time. This is taking a moment to look within and feel within. Again, not making any kind of judgments or liking or not liking. It's just seeing what's there. Yeah. I also think that there's other techniques that, and you write about this in your book, of course, that access that space. And hiking for me is the number one way for me to be able to create 
ideas, solve problems. And I mean, name your philosopher, name your scientist, your poet throughout history who has said the same thing. You know, they've walked in nature to be able to develop ideas. Now, Nietzsche used to, I think, keep a piece of paper with a little pencil in his walking stick that he'd pull out. I today use my phone and Siri, you know, take notes the whole way. The other thing I do and it's by contrast, is often if somebody, if my accountant's calling me and we've got to talk through something laborious but important and I need to be really present, I I, I work from home so I can do this, I go and lie on the floor and I, you know, put my earpods in and I stare at the ceiling. And it has to be the floor, not a couch. I've got to be really close to the ground. I mean, are these techniques that I've developed to, I mean, I know intuitively they help me think and create and and access my mind in in way more productive ways. You know, is there science that backs up what I'm doing here? Yeah, there is actually. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about the the research on the extended mind that often it uh, ends up affirming techniques that people have already found their way to and and then offers some scientific backing and a scientific framework for understanding why they work. So that first one you mentioned, taking a walk in nature, you're actually extending your mind in two ways when you do that. You're extending your mind through physical movement, which tends to get our thoughts flowing in a kind of metaphorical resonance, you know, with the way our bodies are moving starts to be the way that our our mind is working. Whereas, you know, you can imagine just sort of sitting in one place is priming your your thoughts to be a bit stagnant and kind of immobile, you know. And then being outside, there's something very special and unique for us as evolved creatures about the stimuli that we encounter outside. It's of a different quality than the kind of things that we see and concentrate on when we're inside, you know, when we're uh, paying a very kind of sharp, hard edged attention to say a a page in a book or uh, our computer screen. That's a really different kind of attention than when we go outside and our, our attention is much more expansive and more diffuse and it's, it's drawn this way and that, and we're not looking at anything too intently, but at the same time, it's very pleasantly diverting. You know, that's really restorative for our attention. It kind of refills the attentional tank so that when you then return to your workspace, you have lots more of that attentional resource to, to give to your work. And as for lying on the floor, I love that. I think it's almost the definition of grounding, right? You're like, you're really connecting every part of your body to the ground. And that again, is a kind of embodied metaphor for feeling safe, stable, you know, in your own, in your own body in a way that is, I could imagine would be very facilitative of, of, of good thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how we've had to intuit these things and arrive at them ourselves because, of course, the culture works otherwise. You know, we're meant to sit still. You know, schools, workplaces encourage all of that. And we'll we'll get to some of those societal problems in a moment. You write about how fluid movements promote fluid thinking and, and you know, walking is obviously part of that. I write about this in my latest book, This One Wild and Precious Life, how, you know, we, we evolved to walk. We became upright humans, you know, from wandering around on all fours to walking on two feet. And as we did that, our brains developed and we developed reflective thinking nuanced thinking, discerning thinking. And so that discerning thinking works best at the same pace. 
as the walking movement, you know. We can get flow with our discernment when we're work, walking, you know, and it's, and it's actually they've done studies and I'm sure you've come across them where it's the pace of the average person walking through nature that is actually the most, the perfect pace for discernment. But, yes, we, you, you also refer to this idea that it's not just our bodies that we can refer to beyond the brain. We can go out even further, extrapolate things out even further. The world, what we have around us, nature just being one example, but also other people's minds are drawn on when our mind is operating most creatively. I'd really love you to give an example of what you mean because I think most people can understand, oh, all right, the body, get it, you know, we get sensations, they, you know, they're connected to the brain at least. But when we're taking it out that extra dimension further, it can feel maybe a little bit alienating. But can you explain what you mean? Yeah, I think it's hard for us to think about precisely because of what you're saying, Sarah, that our culture has so indoctrinated us with this idea that the mind is this cordoned off, sealed off kind of sphere, you know, and it's, it's apart from the body and it's apart also from social life. You know, we think of intellectual life as being separate in some way from social life. And that's really a very fundamental misunderstanding of who we are as human creatures, because we are so fundamentally social and we're social all the time, you know, not just when we're at a cocktail hour or when we're chatting with a friend, but, but all the time, you know, even the process of thinking is essentially social because where do we learn language from in relation with other people? And psychologists have actually, actually proposed that thinking is really only an internalized conversation. It's basically like a conversation we're having with ourselves. So we're social through and through, and yet we have this habit of separating intellectual activity from social activity when really we want to be harnessing our social nature in the service of thinking and learning and creating. So things like telling stories, teaching other people, debating and arguing with other people, these social activities, they activate cognitive processes that are dormant when we're just sitting alone quietly by ourselves, which is how we, ironically or paradoxically, how we think the, our best thinking happens. But in fact, research has shown that we, we, it's like we get a, a boost in intelligence when we bring our social capacities into, into the thinking process. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Thank you. 
Yeah, I find that that absolutely fascinating. But you also talk about our physical space and the way that we use externalities to facilitate our thinking. That's part of the thinking process. We don't just sit there still with our hands tied. And in fact, I'm just watching you now and I'm watching myself. Gesturing is a big part of this, isn't it? Like, that's a really big thing for me. But also, when I write, I I write with pencil and paper. So every time I've gone to write a book, it's on scraps of notepads and backs of receipts and serviettes from cafes. And, you know, that's not just desperation and lack of organisation that I don't have, you know, my computer with me at all times. It's a choice. I've just worked out that I can only think when I bring all these bits of paper back and I lay them out on the floor and I stick things to the wall and I can remember where all the bits are. You know, when you're working with a 100,000 word book, you know, you've got to have, be able to hold it all. There's no way I can hold it on a screen. And I'll remember where everything is because I also draw. I draw my, my thoughts out. They're often Venn diagrams and squiggles and things like that. So I can identify them really clearly. And from reading your book, I, I realise there's something to this. It's not just, you know, my peculiarities at play here. And you call it looping. And really, the looping thing is exactly why I wanted to actually contact you. Can you explain how looping works? Because it's a really, it's something that I think a lot of us do, but we really don't place a lot of importance on it. I borrowed the word looping from the philosopher Andy Clark, who likes to say that humans are intrinsically loopy creatures. And what he means by that is that our particular kind of biological human intelligence seems to benefit from making loops outside of our heads through other media, like through our bodies, through the minds of other people, through our physical surroundings, in a way that doesn't really have an analog, again, for computers. You know, computers don't need to print out what they're thinking and then mark it up and then pass it to a friend and, you know, all these things that seem to help us uh, think better. And Another word for, for looping is what psychologists call cognitive offloading. And this refers to the idea that it's really best to get information and uh, ideas out of your head whenever possible, put them out into physical space in some form. And then once we've done that, we have all these embodied resources we can use. As you were mentioning, you like to move the pieces around, you know, you're treating ideas and information like they're physical objects, which uh, is what our brain evolved to deal with most effortlessly and efficiently and effectively, rather than concepts that just stay here in the head. You know, it's much better to treat ideas and information as if they're physical objects or as if they're a three-dimensional landscape, you know, like putting it out on a, on a wall or a, a whiteboard and being able to move our bodies closer farther away, move along it as if it's sort of like a timeline. These are all really effective ways of dealing with information that are much more generative than just leaving it inside our heads. Mm. I think that explains how we use the outside world, right? In terms of using other people, you talk about the idea of teaching other people things, that that's a really good way of mm -hmm. being able to mm -hmm. access this type of intelligence or this type of thinking. I'd love you to explain that, and this is completely unrelated, but just while I think of it, because I just remembered I haven't asked you about this one, is this idea of soft fascination. They're completely different ideas. If you can mm. loop them in together in this conversation, great. But, yeah, the idea of teaching other people as a technique for building up this skill set, soft fascination as a really interesting concept. 
Sure. Yeah. I think anyone who's taught has, has found this to be true, that actually having to teach someone else something that you already know is often the most effective way to, to really consolidate and thoroughly understand that knowledge. It's like you don't know where your unclearness are, your confusions, your maybe the parts that you haven't quite thoroughly thought through until you have to explain it to somebody else. It's very easy to think, oh yeah, I know that. But then when you have to explain it and teach it to someone else, all of what you don't yet know is revealed to you. And then in addition, you know, when you teach someone, there's a social motivation that comes into play that's quite powerful. You want your pupil to understand. You want to help them get to the place where they have mastered the material. And so you're much more motivated to to understand and explain than you would be if it's, you know, for the purpose of taking a test or even just understanding something for yourself. And then the question of soft fascination, that returns us to this idea of being outside that you know, most of the attention that we pay to our work or to our learning is this sort of hard-edged concentration that is very draining to our to our brains. It really takes a lot of effort, and we can't do it for that long. We really need to pay attention to not just where we're spending our attentional resources, but how and when we're replenishing them. And to go outside is to engage in this kind of soft fascination. That's that's psychologist term for the way that we our minds kind of relax when we're outside in a way that allows those attentional resources to, resources to be built up again. So I think it's it's important to periodically give ourselves exposure to the outdoors. If we can't make it outside, research suggests that even just looking out the window for a few minutes can have a, a similar effect. The implications of everything that you've said so far on the way we currently do things is pretty profound. And even just thinking about soft fascination, you know, the idea of getting up and going for a walk or staring out the window is a no-no, you know. It's it's deemed inefficient and it goes against all these productivity ideas that we've grown up with since, what, the 1960s, 1970s onwards. And, yeah, it's, it, it's so interesting. Really what you're saying is when we really want to think clearly it is actually about spending time kind of creating the right setup. And good thoughts are not about working the brain harder and efficiently. And the other metaphor we love to use when it comes to the brain is this idea of a muscle, right? We've just got to work it harder. Instead, it's about creating a space and assembling people, the right kinds of people around you and having lovely views and maybe somewhere to walk and rich conversations where and, and I love the way you describe it as conducting an orchestra, right? It's all there and then you can draw on it and bring it to life as and when you need it. It's certainly not how our workplace, our creative kind of setups and, and schools operate. So what are the implications? You've got kids. You said that that was why you first initially were drawn to this realm. But, you know, schools, workplaces, they're not set up for it. We're told to sit still and we're not allowed to go for a walk, you know, when we, it's 11 o'clock in the morning in the workplace. What are you feeling needs to happen to our social setup to best facilitate this kind of clearer thinking? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the the move to remote or hybrid work that many of us have experienced, I think, can be seen as a great opportunity to start to build into our own work lives, these ex, these met these mental extensions. You know, maybe now we do have more freedom to take a walk outside when we need to think, or to build that physical space, that whiteboard, or or that physical model of of what we're thinking about in a way that was 
less possible in the office. You know, on the other hand, a lot of people who experience remote or hybrid work are missing out, feel they're missing out on the the social piece of, of mental extension. And I found your story very interesting, Sarah, about not being able to connect in the same way with your therapist when she when she moved away, because it is the case that the the richness of the signals that we exchange with each other, they it just it, online it can't compare to 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 real life, to to in person contact. So I think we need to be thinking in new ways about creating maybe a, a series or a variety of environments for us to work in. Sometimes there'll be that really collaborative, intensely social interaction with other people, but then maybe other times we need to be in our private space that we've designed to support our own individual thinking, you know, and not to assume that there's one environment or one setting that can do everything. When you think about how many different ways we need to engage in thinking, maybe we need that many, just as many kind of tailored environments for for supporting each of those kinds of thinking. Yeah, I was really interested to read that you are not a big advocate of hotspotting, which is, of course, what a lot of workplaces are turning to <laughs> post-COVID as they're right. shrinking office sizes and people are coming in maybe for three days a week and sharing sharing a desk. I'd love you to explain why that's the case, why you're not a big fan. Yeah, I certainly understand the practical imperatives that are leading companies to experiment with a practice of, of assigning someone a desk uh, that might not have been their desk yesterday and might not be their desk tomorrow. But the research really shows that having a sense of control and and sort of possession of of your of your own space feeling that it's your turf that it belongs to you and also having a space that's filled with cues you know with what psychologists call evocative objects that remind you of who you are in that role and also of what those are known as cues of identity and then also reminders of the valued groups to which you belong those are known as cues of belonging all of those are kind of missing if you've got this generic space that doesn't belong to you, isn't really yours. And I think we're going to see that the thinking done in those kinds of spaces suffers as a result. Mm, and open offices as well. I've never been a fan of those. I don't mind having a cup of tea, making my cup of tea in the open office part of the office. But beyond that, I I just can't think in that way. And it really speaks to that idea of feeling some ownership and coziness in your space. You know, I've worked in places where I have an office, but I keep the door open because I do like to hear the noise. But I I, I sort of need that sort of closed off space. And then I walk out and it's really interesting I used to, when I ran a business and I had 25 staff, you know, I would often have to walk out to talk to people, the poor staff, they had to just stop what they were doing and listen to whatever it was that I was saying. But it speaks to what you were saying about needing to speak out or teach people as you go. I mean, that's definitely a big part. I mean, I don't remember anything unless I actually have a conversation with someone. And what I used to do with my staff is when they were trying to, and I did this as well when I was editing women's magazines, I had young writers who would get stumped on the opening paragraph or the gist of the argument that they were making in their article. And I would say to them, okay, imagine we're at the pub and I'm one of your friends. What would you tell them? Like, what are you working on today? What's the thing you're doing today? And then out it comes, this beautifully balanced, you know, sort of progressive argument. And 
you become more responsible, you know. It's a little bit like writing a book. I'm sure you feel the same way. You know, you write a book about something and all of a sudden you're really alive to it. You witness it in yourself. So, yeah, I, I think all of these things, they work, but the most important thing that I garner from what you're talking about is this idea of pulsing having different spaces, different opportunities, different types of people. And yes, being that, you know, that conductor of the orchestra, able to draw on it when you can. There's one thing that you touch on in your book, and I find it a challenge for myself, is working out how other people think. And you make the point that the brain is really not good at it, right? But by utilising our bodies and, and these external resources, you know, out in the world and, you know, other people and that kind of thing, we're much better able to understand other people. Why is that? Like, and what can we do to better understand people? I'm imagining there's women and, and men out there thinking, I'd really like to better understand what my partner is thinking. Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult, right? Because another person's mind is really a black box. You know, we don't know. We have no direct access to what's going on in someone else's brain. And the closest we can get, and it's a, a channel that we can really cultivate and develop, is using our bodies, as you said, as a kind of as a kind of channel between ourselves and another person. And the, the scientist phrase for what that process is social interoception. You know, earlier we were you and I were talking about interoception as tuning into your own internal signals. But something like that can come into play when we're talking to another person, because when we're face-to-face. And again, this is why the really rich signals we exchange when we're in person with someone are so important. We start to mimic in a very subtle way their expressions, their gestures, their postures. And in that way, we start to feel a little bit of what they're feeling. You know, And I think we've all had this experience when you're talking to a friend who's feeling very down and sad, we may start to feel a little bit of that in ourselves. Or if you're with a friend who's really expansive and, you know, just feeling on top of the world, you start to feel some of that in yourself. So interestingly, therapists are trained and are really very astute at this. They read off their own bodies what their clients may be feeling and may not even be able to express in words, but therapists are, ver- are very good at tuning into their own bodies to say, oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling angry right now. Where is that coming from? It's actually a communication of affect in between two people. Mm. I've got to ask, you know, having written this book, what have you done differently? What are some of the practices in your life now that have changed and and also with your children and the way that they go about their schooling and their learning. Yeah. I'm I'm imagining there'd be parents out there thinking about their kids with perhaps ADHD issues mm-hmm. who are told to sit still all day. But yeah, what are you what are you doing differently? What have you shifted? I'm glad you mentioned parenting because I think this is a place where the extended mind can really be very helpful and it's really a matter of pushing back against so many of the messages that our kids get in school and in, from the culture at large, which is if you want to get something done, you shut yourself up in a room, you're, you have to be very still, very quiet, and then you work your brain until it's exhausted. You know, that's basically kind of the instruction that our kids get about how to get a, a difficult task done. And it's so counterproductive. I, I have tried to really instill in my kids the notion that there's another way, which is to be open to the full range of resources that are available to them, you know, in terms of moving their bodies, in terms of changing up the space where they're working, in terms of talking out their ideas with a friend or tutoring, you know, a peer. And I find that, you know, that brain bound way of working that I started out by describing 
leads to a lot of frustration. You know, it's a lot of sort of banging your head against a wall, whereas the extended mind approach just opens things up. There's so many avenues, there's so many approaches. So that has really, that has changed the way that I parent. And then for myself, I've used a lot of the tools that we've talked about. I, I do try to tune into my internal cues and sensations just on a brief passing, but frequent basis throughout the day. I try to get outside a lot. I try to look outside when I'm talking on the phone, for example, that can be a really nice time to let your gaze just sort of unfocus and become diffuse. And I really do make a lot of use of cognitive offloading. You know, as you said, Sarah, when you're working on a book and you've got to keep all this information and all these ideas aloft, you know, as you're kind of putting them into place, it's so helpful to not try to do all of that in your head, but to get it out out onto physical space. I'm a big fan of post-it notes and, you know, moving them around. So I found all of those to be really useful uh, techniques. Yeah, and I'm glad you do emphasise the idea of that physical offloading because I know people who use digital kind of apps and some of them, oh, my God, there's one called Obsidian, I think it's called. Somebody showed me it once and it's it's a sort of a note-taking thought collation app which takes all these different things that you're doing and puts them into this digital format which is just this big mess of content on a page which I just look at and, and I'm not sure what's going on but you know there's many others like Evernote and so on that help you that help you write out notes and organize your thoughts but they've never worked for me ever post-it notes bits of paper the only way and yes it's that idea of having it external from the computer you know the computer notion of the brain and and that linear way of thinking And, you know, as I've been listening to you, I've been thinking about how we have really, I guess, punished ourselves for not being more productive, not being able to build the muscle of the brain and and just work harder and force fit things. It's It's a massive relief to know that what we are doing instead, what we default to, actually has scientific basis and could be a way forward. So I hear all of this and I'm massively relieved. It feels more fun, you know, <laughs> to go about things as a, as a conductor of, of my ideas and my creations. So thank you so much for this conversation. I've found it super helpful and I'm sure a lot of parents out there will as well. So yeah, good luck with all your endeavours and thank you again. Thank you, Sarah. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, a few quick takeaways or reminders of things that Annie suggested in our conversation that can get us thinking in a more extended way. All right, the first one, you know, teach others. Tell others what you're working on and you will find that the ideas clarify a hell of a lot better. Meditate. There's a way to feel into bodily sensations. I've found that I've totally got to a point where I can use my gut feeling or interoception to make big decisions now. And it's been via meditation and yoga. And I do now use my body to make a hell of a lot more decisions than I used to. And you might recall a very old episode with Jill Bolte-Taylor, the brain scientist who witnessed herself from inside her brain having a stroke. And she experienced full interoception or right brain thinking, as she calls it. We talked about this ability, you know, accessing our gut feeling in that episode. And I'll put the link in the show notes. And of course, she suggests moving and walking in nature, which is what I've been doing for a hell of a long time. And I can tell you it works. But flow as it works for you. I know some people like standing desks in their office. 
and they need to walk while they're on the phone. I don't. In fact, I've got to be still when I'm talking to people. But it's really about finding your way because flow creates more flowing thoughts, as Annie says. That is, be like a bowerbird or a magpie that circles around, grabbing bits of information from here that needs to look out the view over there or might need to talk to person X at a certain point, but person Y in other contexts to get an idea super clear. And offload externally, that is, write it down, draw it. The apps are not nearly as effective. And see yourself as a conductor of an orchestra, drawing on all the glorious inputs as and when you need, rather than being an aggressive disciplinarian hell-bent on building muscle and forcing, forcing. As I say to Annie, this way of thinking is way more charming than the way we've been doing things to date. And I found it a relief to hear Annie just validate the ways I've wound up having to do things. It helps to be shown what I've known to be true is not problematic. Finally, as I listened to Annie talk through all of this, I couldn't help but think of the implications for this new way of thinking about thinking on AI and how far we're being told that it will be able to go in emulating the human mind or human intelligence. It's hard to imagine AI can ever access this complex range of sources uh, we use to create, to develop ideas, to solve problems and to be human. It also speaks to something I've explored a few times already here on Wild. As the world gets more and more complex, we're going to have to embrace a different kind of thinking that can best hold all the things. It's called systems theory or complexity theory, and Indigenous peoples around the world are very well versed in it. And I discussed this Indigenous knowledge system stuff with academic Tyson Young-Porter in a previous episode, and I'll put that in the show notes as well. And I'm thinking this freer way of looping is probably best equipped for this complex task ahead, for the the complexity we're going to have to solve in coming decades. Anyway, I'll continue this conversation over at Substack so you can place comments and feedback there. I'll share more detail on how I loop in a post as this episode goes to air. As always, stay wild and I'll see you next week. 